Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Oh, sweet. Okay, wait. I gotta get... I gotta get pictures of everyone back up. It's good to see everyone, you know? And what, what it all looks like. All right. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, we are here today talking again about the coronavirus that has forced us into our respective makeshift home studios. We wanted to take a, a kind of look today at some of the stuff on the on the production side, right? And And what does it kind of mean to mobilize a country uh, to make... I don't know, the the things that, that we need. Uh, there's been this kind of back and forth for days where the president has said he was invoking the Defense Production Act, then not actually invoking it, and, you know, progressives calling on him to do it. And, and this is a law from the, uh, from the Korean War era that essentially, in an emergency, allows the president to order companies to make certain things at certain prices. Uh, in this particular case, I would think ventilators being the most urgent thing, although there was an, an announcement Tuesday morning uh, that that one of the big car companies, Ford, is in fact making ventilators at a plant that normally makes um, some kind of some kind of seat fan for F-150 pickup trucks. Um, so that's good, but it, it, it seems like you would you would want to go further with this. Right. And I mean, there's been kind of even before the specific prospect of the defense, the Defense Production Act was raised and the White House issued an executive order that gave them the power to make orders under the Defense Production Act, which they have not since used. There was kind of a question about, well, how is it that the U.S., which is a modern industrialized country, doesn't have the same, you know, has all of these shortages of personal protective equipment, of ventilators, of testing kits? How is it that a modern industrialized country has all of these problems when other countries that were at critical points in the coronavirus pandemic before now don't appear to have had such acute shortages? And the answer is in large part that, like, being a modern country and being an industrialized country in the 21st century are A, not necessarily the same thing, and B, 
subject to a lot of kind of underlying government policies about what gets produced and when, which is what we're now talking about explicitly, kind of once we're in the throes of this, you know, mass shortage, nearly triage phase of the pandemic. It'll be interesting to in a couple of months to think about this period, because, you know, as our colleague Ezra Klein has said numerous times, we're essentially trying to think three weeks ahead of where we actually are in the state of this pandemic. And right now we are looking at the production capacity of about two weeks ago. And so I think my biggest question is what could we be doing and how could we be doing it? Because it seems as if if we have the means by which we can essentially tell private companies what to do. You know, the Defense Production Act was not around during the early 1940s, but it was inspired by laws from 1941 and 1942 that basically allowed the White House to tell companies like Ford, like, you are now in charge of producing airplanes. How do we think about the Defense Production Act in these times? And what would that mean in terms of consumer goods? And what would that mean in terms of the economy? Right. So this is where I just fundamentally do not understand the current situation and would love people who are following politics and have sharper political insights than I do to explain it to me. Because on the one hand, we've been hearing for years, and it's been true for years, that the main thing that distinguishes Donald Trump from many of his Republican colleagues is that he doesn't have a problem intervening into the economy to actively help businesses that he likes and that he considers business to be a matter of favor giving and is totally on board with particular companies lobbying him to do particular things and giving them big shout outs when they do the things that he likes and all of that. And now suddenly we're in a situation where the official line from the White House is, well, we don't want to invoke the Defense Production Act too aggressively because it's going to get in the way of the free market or it's going to turn us into Venezuela or something, you know, kind of straw man like that. And it just doesn't seem to jive with the idea that this president doesn't usually have a problem using the powers of the executive branch to help business, especially at a time when it seems that the line of the White House generally is that the most important thing we can be doing right now is helping business get back on its feet. Well, that's the thing, though, is that the Defense Production Act doesn't help business, right? So so Trump Trump deviates from sort of normal Republican free market ideology in order to sometimes say, well, we need to help American steel companies. Right. But the but the way the DPA works is that, you know, in, in a free market circumstance, you would say, OK, there's this incredible shortage of ventilators. So state governments are desperate. So they are willing to pay huge sums of money to get extra ventilators. And they're willing to pay so much money that factories that build loosely similar things that push air around for their cars are willing to incur the expense of retooling to make ventilators for hospitals because the profit margins that you can now reap on ventilators are so incredibly high, right? That would be the that would be the free market fix to this. The Defense Production Act fix to this is the president says, my advisors tell me that you have the technical capacity to retool this factory to make ventilators. So we're going to make you do it. And we will let you charge a a cost plus factor so that, you know, like your factory doesn't go out of business, but there isn't going to be any extraordinary profits to take advantage of the of the crisis situation. And that, as best I can tell, is the step he doesn't want to take, that he wants to 
work with the companies, you know, to sort of get on the phone, make sure that the the prices being charged aren't obscene in a way that would produce like huge backlash, but be sort of nice guy about it, right? Whereas in World War II, in the circumstances envisioned by the Defense Production Act, it's like how they they conscripted people to go to war rather than paying them, you know, enough bonuses, right? You just say, like, everybody gets paid, but, like, you just gotta go. And so it's just, like, the draft for factories. And, right, corporate conscription is actually a great way. Thank you. It's super useful. And he doesn't want to do it. Right. Right. And one of the challenges, and we talked about this a little bit last week, with this pandemic, is that we really don't have a historical reference or historical marker to use. So even thinking about this in terms of the last time we got close to using the Defense Production Act, which Trump has actually invoked in some ways before with regard to China and rare metals, but we don't really have a corollary at a time where the United States government, as Matt said, did not ask the Ford company in 1941, would you please, for financial reasons, please produ- produce planes that will all run? They said, you will produce planes. And Henry Ford, who at that point was largely retired to be busy being anti-Semitic somewhere else, they was like, oh, okay, my son Edsel will take over this effort. And so- Well, can we can we explain explain the history in a, in a less jokey way? Like, what, what happened, right? It's the, the United States didn't have, this was early in the history of airplanes so there like wasn't a big military industrial complex to make planes there were a few companies that had designs but then we had these big car factories right so we had in 1941 the united states government established the liberator production pool program which was to create the b24 which is a you know a bomber that could be mass produced and the ford company Uh, joined that program and they also provide supplied an airfield and a lot of this took place in at willow run in michigan and which which was a large farm at the time but it was also it you know it was owned by henry ford and so it was used as both a factory and an airfield and it became this massive industrial effort to produce thousands and thousands and thousands of planes you know, Charles Lindbergh was involved as a consultant at the plant to get the idea of what combat squadrons wanted. But this was a absolutely massive effort. It was at one point by 1944, and I just was double checking this, they were rolling a plane off the production line every 63 minutes, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And Ford built about 7,000 of the 18,000, 18, 5,000 B-24s that were assembled. And they made 70% of B-24s in two nine-hour shifts that were taking place. And so this was a massive industrial effort. But it was a massive industrial effort that could only be possible at a time in which all of industry was turned over to the war effort. I think that that's one of these things where this is not that time. And so even thinking about that as being historical corollary is challenging because we do not have, and I will not say the benefit of, but we do not have the cause of, we are at war on two separate fronts and need to essentially produce everything domestically because all potential production allies are also doing the exact same thing. But kind of, aren't we? I mean... Leaving the question of other countries aside, it does seem that 
you know, if you just look at the way that Wall Street has reacted over the last two weeks, there appears to be awareness that we are in the midst of two war scale crises, one a public health crisis and one the economic crisis that is, you know, in large part interconnected with the public health crisis, but, uh, you know, to a questionable extent independent of it or, you know, might be longer lasting than the public health crisis. It seems that even if you think about the critique that's gained a certain amount of traction in the last few decades that corporations are currently incapable of thinking anything, you know, are currently incapable of doing things that are going to hurt their next quarterly earnings call and therefore, you know, are doing things that aren't going to be in their own long-term best interests. It seems that the best way to have a not terrible, horrible, no good, very bad quarterly earnings call for like Q2 in 2020 is to say, okay, we have a relatively restrained public health crisis because, and you know, because we've taken these measures and therefore we're not going to suffer the economic hit either from the public health crisis itself for the next several months or the longer term, like Great Depression style uh, economic effects that you would have seen if the crash had gotten as bad as it was. Like, I'm just not, I mean, maybe the answer here is that it's just the question of what profit they can extract from this transaction. But it does seem like there is a really strong, compelling interest for literally everyone involved to minimize the number of deaths from COVID-19 in the next several weeks. But I think so much of this is a question of planning, I think, right? So that if you're a company whose you know, output is a little bit idled right now by the general situation. And you're thinking maybe there's something we could do to like get a piece of the household cleaning products market or the surgical mask market or other kinds of personal protective equipment. You know, uh, these plastic face shields. Uh, th there's a lot of things out there. It's still costly to try to switch your production to something else, right? And you need to have some sense of, well, how long is there going to be extra demand for this kind of product, right? And one thing the government could do that would be helpful would be to be clear, right, about, like, what's going on here. And, you know, do we think this is... Not that necessarily like lockdown conditions need to last for 18 months, but that an elevated level of concern about all these products will last for a long time. Even more strongly, you could give purchase guarantees, right? You could say, look, if for some reason, six months from now, you're left with 10 million excess N95 masks, like we will buy them. We will put them in a warehouse somewhere, right? We will put them in that uh, Yucca Mountain cave where you know, Nevada politicians aren't letting us store nuclear waste. You know, we'll save them to sell to California next wildfire season. It's not like there aren't other uses for all of the things we're talking about. Here. I mean, right. I mean, there, there are things you could do, but you would need a, a budget line for it. And, you know, the economics are also relevant because we've landed in a weird spot, right, where in a slaty contrarian way, I could say, um, oh, price gouging in a crisis is actually good because if you let people price gouge for masks, then it makes sense for 3M to run the assembly line 24 hours a day, right? You need to pay people a lot more money to work a factory shift that's like from midnight to 8 a.m., than a normal one. So you can't sell at the normal cost. But if we let 3M gouge, then they can run the factories more often and more product can come off. Then there's like a lot of reasons to not price gouge. But 
then the non-free market way to do that would be to go Defense Production Act and would be to say to 3M, look, we are guaranteeing you a purchase, uh, but yes, it's going to be low margin. We just, we need you to run this 24-7. We need you to find the people. We will do what it takes to like help find laid off restaurant workers in Minnesota and get them working there. But like it, it, maybe we even need to cover the overtime tab, but it's going to get done at a non-gouging price. We've landed instead in the middle, right, where we're doing the politically easy, not free markety thing. And we're not letting companies gouge, I think, correctly. But then we're not doing the hard thing. Right. Which is that was like the push pull of World War Two mobilization is you had price controls, you had rationing, but then you you had to go do it. And we're right now in a little bit of a of a dead zone, which is fine. It makes sense if this all blows over in two weeks, because if you did what I was suggesting and it all blew over in two weeks, you'd look like an idiot with the government having spent hundreds of billions of dollars to have like huge warehouses full of like gloves that nobody wants. But I don't see any indication that this will blow over in two weeks, right? And it, it seems to me it like it would make sense to start making changes for the long haul. And like, dumb troll point here, but along the same slady contrarian lines, if you did, if it did blow over in the United States in two weeks, wouldn't it be plausible that you could then turn around and tell those companies, okay, we've just given you a bunch of products that you can sell to other governments that are still dealing with this at like whatever price you want? And, you know, you can recoup that profit anyway. Sure. Gouge, gouge the Brazilians. Right, right. Like gouge everybody else. But if if we're if we're thinking about this in a the purpose of U.S., you know, given that Donald Trump has made it pretty clear that a primary purpose of U.S. foreign policy is to get other countries to buy American goods. It certainly seems, you know, I just it's I understand that the logic that we're thinking through is not necessarily the logic that a plant manager is thinking through, it just does seem very, it, it doesn't seem like any of these are uncuttable Gordian knots is kind of what I'm coming back to. And I am a little surprised that it doesn't play more to uh, President Trump's sort of taste for drama, right? I mean, like, doesn't every president on some level want to oversee a, a World War II style economic mobilization? Right. Like, wouldn't Donald Trump love to be the person ordering the plant to stay open? I think that he would. I think that the people around him would not. Because I mean, I, you know, I've said this before, but I think in many ways, my theory of Donald Trump is that he was very happy to deal with human led crises. There was a New York Times piece about a week ago that made this point that with, you know, when it comes to yelling at attorneys or yelling at ex-wives or yelling about Russia or something like a human created crisis, he was more than happy to deal with that because he could place himself in opposition to that human. The pandemic does not particularly care about political alliances or workshopping fun phrases on Twitter. Pandemics don't care. And so I think that in many ways, this is a real challenge because, especially because Trump has put so much emphasis on the stock market being reflective of his own personal success. And we saw that during the Obama years and we see it now. And so I think that this is not a uncuttable Gordian knot for virtually anyone else, but it is when the stock market is believed to be, one, reflective of the larger economy, and two, the primary indicator of the economy in a re-election year. And especially, let's keep in mind that our memories of World War II are somewhat jaded by the fact that we won 
and essentially every other economy was virtually obliterated for about 20, 25 years. Let's keep in mind that the United Kingdom was on war rations for about a decade after following the end of the war. And so our concept of wartime production is based one on you know, kind of halcyon memories of how this helped us win the war, but also on the fact that the United States government also repressed a lot of information about the impact that was having both locally and statewide for wartime propaganda uses. And I mean propaganda in a very, like, as neutral a term as I can put it. But I think it's important to remember that, like, all of this was happening in a specific context in which the context was we're trying to win. Right. Well, and I think it's also that the collective memory is kind of shaped by the baby boom, which is the generation that doesn't remember wartime privation, but remembers in the same way that everyone remembers childhood and like, well, that that it's stereo that one stereotypically remembers childhood in a like warm, suffused, nostalgic glow, remembers the post-war economy, the industrial capacity of which was, you know, somewhat boosted by the war. But but I also think there's a an important just ideological aspect to this. When I was a kid, you know, I had one grandfather who flew on airplanes during World War II in in the European theater. And, you know, he had all these cool stories about, you know, invasion of Sicily and, and, you know, daring do and stuff like that. I had this other grandfather who worked in the, um, I think it was in the Office of Price Administration, uh, but he he was an economist uh, later in life. and, And this is how we got his start. But basically, he was working on rationing boots, right? How many boots do we need for civilian production versus for military production? And how many boots per person should people be allowed to have? And what should they cost? And, and you know, all, all kinds of stuff like that, right? And it's only like later as a tedious policy person uh, that I learned that this boots thing was like probably a more important contribution fundamentally than like any one guy in, in an airplane. But the the work that they did there in in OPA was aligned with New Deal values. They promoted labor unions in the factories. They ordered companies to go on compressed wage scales so that nobody was making too much money and nobody was making too little. And they, you know, made judgments about well, what's really important that civilians did need boots, they decided for farm work and a million other things that that wasn't frivolous, but that like office dress shoes were not considered important. Right. Even though like free market logic is that the people who have office jobs have more money to spend on their footwear. So leather should be allocated to that. And, you know, some of the the reason that happened was wartime exigency. But part of the reason why they were so eager to do it is they were these these new dealers, like that's who worked for FDR. And that's not at all who works for Donald Trump, right? It's people who see, you see a lot of worry about, well, what's going to be the economic damage of these shutdowns? But some of that worry is about, well, what would be the political cost of fixing the problems in that kind of way, right? Whereas a different, like Bernie Sanders, I think would have for obvious reasons, like no hesitation about putting the economy on wartime footing, if it was even vaguely plausible, uh, because like that's what he believes in. Um, Donald Trump personally doesn't have a like deep appreciation for the free market, but Larry Kudlow does. Like all the mid-ranking officials in the Trump administration are like still basically Republicans, and they don't like want to operate a planned economy. And that comes back to what Jane was saying earlier about Wall Street being a proxy for the economy. You know, given that day to day 
that Wall Street's day to day reaction to news often is, does this, you know, help or hurt business or labor in a zero sum sort of way? It's possible to imagine that news cycles that are about, you know, placing the economy on a wartime footing could have short term negative impact on Wall Street, which is a very good reason if you care a lot about whether the stock market is closing up or down, good reason not to do it. So let's take a break. And and I want to talk about uh, another aspect of this where I have a more pro-Trump view. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Once upon a time, we were going to do an episode this week, I think about industrial policy. Um, And then a pandemic intervened. Um, But this has had me thinking about a controversy that broke out, I think, over a year ago in the Trump administration, which is he was invoking some national security authority to impose tariffs on imported metal. And he imposed tariffs even on metal imports from Canada. And a lot of people, myself included, had this kind of like har har har, like we're going to have a war with Canada, like lol, I roll. Um, This is, you know, a NATO ally, blah, blah, blah. One thing that you are seeing in the pandemic, right, is that precisely because the enemy is not, you know, human in nature, like now, no, there are no alliances in the war on the pandemic, right? If Canada was sitting on a huge N95 mask factory, like all countries are restricting exports of medical supplies. 
allies, right? Even to other close allies, it actually really does matter. Like, what is your literal domestic production capacity? Not just like we can't trust the Chinese because they're untrustworthy. There's nothing untrustworthy about the Canadians. It's just everybody is facing shortages. Everybody's looking after number one. It's a very not neoliberal like context in a almost like you know, Hobbesian war of all against all out there. As it turns out, like giant pile of steel is not useful in this crisis. But if Trump had said in 2018 for national security, I'm going to put tariffs on imported surgical masks so that we can boost production of surgical masks and not depend on France or whatever for them, I would have laughed at him. But like it it turns out there really is something to that. Like, uh, there's there's something to be said for making things close to home if you might need them in a crisis. Right. I think that that's why for a lot of populist Republicans like Josh Hawley and to some extent Tom Cotton, though, in a different way, this has actually been you know the time at which everything you said and in to some degree, they would argue everything Trump said up until like early January can, you know, has come to pass. And it's interesting to, you know, if you read a lot of conservative media, there is even some saying, like, why isn't Trump making more, like, why is Trump trying to make nice with the Chinese government more about this? Like, why isn't this more of a thing? And I think it, it's interesting how much of this, how much of when we talk about Trump, there's how much, you know, we talk about Trump and what he would do based on our interpretations of what Trumpism is. And occasionally it's worth remembering that it that Trumpism and Trump are largely two disconnected concepts. So yes, it would make entirely too much sense for Trump to use this opportunity to talk about the importance of making things in America and changing our supply chains. But that would also require Trump to do something that he does clearly does not or did not want to do. I do think it's worth talking a little more about this kind of whether we're really in a global war of all against all fitting, because we're seeing these occasional headlines about like, you know, China sending medical supplies to Italy or Cuba sending things to places. And, you know, there's the immediate warm and fuzzy, oh, global solidarity, followed by the secondary warm and fuzzy, oh, you know, ideological boundaries are, or ideological differences are being eliminated. Every country is willing to, you know, set that aside for the good of common humanity. But, you know, for one thing, it's no one is operating in perfect information about just kind of basic epidemiological facts about this virus. And therefore, you know, any of these kind of, oh, we aren't going to need these medical supplies calculations aren't existing in such a perfect state of information that you can assume that they're definitely, oh, okay, it is good for public health to send things over here rather than it's good for our headlines. You know, in the case of China in particular, if we want to recoup some kind of soft power global leadership points uh, and not get blamed for spreading this all over the world, we're going to have to do some stuff to, you know, make it seem like we're the ones supplying other countries with what they need to fight it. But it also reminds me a little bit of the microeconomic parallels of like, you know, we hear, we've heard some stuff about, well, the real, one of the real long-term or medium-term economic impacts of this, if we remain in a crisis footing, is going to be impact to the supply chain. And so far, it appears that that is relatively intact, but that hasn't been obvious if you've been seeing these pictures of like empty shelves and that kind of thing. And the microeconomists say, well, that's because it's it's not that there actually are shortages. It's that the 
intact supply chain was not prepared for the panic buying that we were going that we saw over the last few weeks. And if people had just bought at a normal pace, things would be, you know, things would be flowing as needed. But because there was this panic buying on the consumer side, there appeared to be a shortage and has in fact been a shortage for, you know, people who have tried to buy toilet paper in the last week in various places, for example, or, you know, elderly people who needed who needed assistance to go to the store two weeks ago and therefore couldn't get anything because nothing was left on the shelves, which is why, you know, some grocers have started devoting hours to at-risk shoppers. But it does, it, it it's worth thinking about that we don't really know when our industrial capacity is actually where we need it to be and when we're looking at the momentary demand spike that's going to result in like long-term supply issues down the road that may or may not be addressable by kind of shipping things off to other places. Like shipping things off to other places doesn't seem like the worst idea from an epidemiological standpoint. Different countries are going to have this hit at different times. But it's just worth thinking about what all we don't know about just how bad this is going to get, when it's going to get better, and when it's going to get bad again. Yeah. And I mean, you're talking about the sort of supply chain of things in the grocery store. In an, in an earlier phase in this crisis, we were worried when when the situation in China seemed much worse than the situation in the United States, there was this concern about how, you know, American companies dependence on this kind of long tail of products coming from all throughout Asia. I, I, I wrote something about Apple and it was like, an iPhone has components from like dozens of different countries in it. So any kind of problems anywhere can sort of take people down. So like one thought that seemed on point for maybe 10 days is that maybe companies would look at shortening their supply chains because we'd learned that disruption anywhere could be a problem for everywhere. Now I think we're flipping back around to the other thing, which is the idea that in a pandemic, it's not going to matter where you are, that sort of disruptions are coming for you every place. But it is going to matter. I mean, like, it's weird. Like, nobody ever thought of, well, we should have a strategic hand sanitizer reserve, right? But some of this stuff, you know, I, I've heard a lot of people, public officials saying, reassuring us, like, there's no shortage of toilet paper. And that's right, right? Because, like, people don't need to wipe themselves any more than they normally do. And the toilet paper factories still work fine. But there are other things. Like, I am, in fact, using way more Lysol wipes than I normally would. That's not I think just like, well, there were panic buyers, right? Like I'm using more soap. I'm using more hand sanitizer. I'm using more Lysol wipes. I'm supposed to be. And even when we talk about, say we're like super optimistic about when we can quote unquote get back to normal, part of getting back to normal in the absence of a vaccine is going to be maintaining the heightened usage of those cleaning products. Right. Like we're not going to get back to normal in the sense that people just are like, la di da, I don't even care about this virus. The idea would be when we get the caseloads down to a level where if everybody is washing their hands rigorously, if everybody is disinfecting doorknobs rigorously, if everybody has sanitizer in their pocket and uses it every time they go outside, then we're not going to see viral spread. And I, I hope that will happen. Like that's, a, I, I think, a pretty optimistic case. But it is, in fact, a world in which we're going to need like a, a lot more soap. 
Right. And then, of course, even if we did have the capacity to make the soap that the U.S. market demanded, it would be very difficult to know at what point is that enough of a surplus that, like, if we are in this kind of global solidarity, humanity fighting something that isn't human, like the sort of action movie that I can imagine being developed to appeal equally to the U.S. and Chinese markets five years down the line, when do you know, okay, we have enough to care for our own citizens now. It's time to think about the public health, the like benefits to our citizens of stopping the spread of this in other countries. I'm interested in thinking about how this operates in the context of our current politics, especially as we are seeing a lot of I've spoken to a couple of kind of conservatives over the last couple of days, and there very much is a sense that for a lot of people, they have hammers. This appears to be an available nail. And specifically with regard to changing how our supply chains work or kind of de-emphasizing China, I would love counterexamples of, you know, I, I, Matt and Dara, I really enjoyed your slate contrarian takes. And I was actually, is there a slate contrarian take to like, actually, we should be expanding our supply chains elsewhere. Like, actually, we should be doing this in the exact opposite way in which we've been doing it. I mean, it feels like there's a tension around pandemics, not just in economic terms, but in political terms, right? Where when a pandemic is not happening, we should think more about pandemics was a classic talking point of internationalists. Right. Who would say, look, this isn't really a competitive world of power politics. The worst thing that could happen to the United States, like you, you can go look like Vox has a video with with Bill Gates talking to Ezra Klein. And Ezra asks him, he's like, what's the thing you're most afraid of? And Bill Gates tells him there could be a flu like respiratory virus, uh, you know, arising that would spread out of control um, and, and explained our Netflix series. There's a great episode called The Next Pandemic, which like spells this out exactly. Um, and Vox has been immersed in that kind of expertise and rhetoric uh, for years. And it was always as part of, you know, neoliberal globalism, right? Like, this is the kind of thing Bill Gates would tell people they should worry about more. Like, don't be so afraid of terrorists on an airplane. Like, worry about invisible germs in Chinese wet markets, right? And, and the meaning of all that is like, well, we need to cooperate more. But then when the pandemic hits... Like, it's exactly the opposite, right? And everybody is, how can we curtail travel? It's like Trump's statement that, like, this shows we need to build a wall with Mexico is a, is a little dumb. Uh, but the the broader meta point that, like, all countries have reacted to this by hardening borders and restricting travel is completely correct. Like, that well, is... With the partial exception of Mexico, but <laughs> fair enough. But, uh, you know, uh, th that's what people do. Right. And the the local and you see it even internal to the European Union. Right. One of the big ideas of the European Union is you can travel across borders freely. Uh, but as soon as it became clear how bad things were in Italy, Austria closed the border. Right. The locus of political legitimacy remains the sovereign nation state. People say, if our countrymen are sick, we must help them. If foreigners are sick, we must keep them out. And everybody accepts that principle. We repatriate our patients from the cruise ship, but we also prevent foreigners from docking here. And that's not like 
Trump, right? I mean, those are Trumpy themes. But as far as I know, like every advanced democracy has reacted in that exact same spirit that we bear collective burdens on behalf of our fellow citizens. And we say, fuck you to foreigners. And that's a that's a tough one. Like, it, it doesn't sit well with me. Like, that's it, it's not my worldview. Like, I wanted, like, pandemic preparedness one. Like, this shows we all need to work together because uh, we're all in this together as a world. But the reality is more like number two. So my question is, we do have a little bit of information about whether this is, you know, a whether this is actually a good idea. If you think about the fact that the U.S. has, you know, states and localities that can make some policies to prevent the spread of this and, you know, that also can need to be making purchases to to increase their own supply. Like a lot of the reason that there's been this confusion about Trump not invoking the Defense Production Act more is that governors themselves have been saying, don't put it on us to buy things. We're trying, you know, we're losing money and we're we can't buy as much as we want because we have to be outbidding each other for these respi- respirators invoke the defense production act and give us your, you know or sell it sell to us at like cost plus these respirators so that we're not spending all of our you know kind of all of our response funds upbidding each other so it does seem that if the kind of federalist response is analogous here. If there is, if there's an extent to which governors are responsible for the well-being of people in their states, we are seeing, you know, some acknowledgement that there does need to be a cooperative or a like supra, uh, you know, supra governmental response here. That that is that that is helpful for everyone in both the short and long terms. You know, on the other hand, I guess it's plausible that governors understand that national politics is that like that politics have been nationalized and Republican governors don't particularly want a bloodbath in 2020 because that's going to be bad for them. I guess that that is a way in which it's not analogous, but it it certainly does seem that we are that we're seeing some recognition when it's politically possible to do so that if you can coordinate action centrally, that's not always, you know, that, that like that doesn't hurt your citizens at the, you know, by helping other people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> should we take a break to do, do a white paper? Yeah. Let's let's talk about something uplifting like polio. Yeah, it's a fun one. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, you know, I was I was looking for some pandemic-relevant research that wasn't just like a quickie paper about COVID-19. And I found Keith Myers and Melissa Thomason, Paralyzed by Panic, Measuring the Effect of School Closures During the 1916 Polio Pandemic on Educational Attainment. Uh, this came out in September of 2017. I, I learned one thing about polio here, which was I had always thought that polio had like stricken mankind from time immemorial until the vaccine after World War II. Uh, but actually, it turns out it like wasn't a serious problem for most of human history. So polio, the first really big polio outbreak in the United States came in 1916, uh, relatively late in, in human history, obviously. Um, and it led to a lot of the kind of responses we're familiar with, quarantine orders, school closures, uh, things like that. Um, I have been wondering, having a kid who is home from school, like what the meaning of this is for everyone. Um, so they studied it. They, they tried to instrument where kids were most likely to be out of school by looking at sort of how bad the polio was. They... Unfortunately, nobody kept records of when they actually closed schools. Um, and what they show is that places that had a lot of polio um, have worse educational outcomes, basically for older kids, that if you were really young in this time, it doesn't seem to have been a big deal. But it, it looks like maybe a lot of people just dropped out of school and didn't finish. Because uh, this was at a time when finishing high school was you know, a far from universal kind of activity. So if you were 14, school was shut down for a while, maybe you went and got some job and never came back. Um, and they show it's a, you know, it's a sizable impact, but only on this kind of small cohort of people. Right. I admit that I have a little bit of trouble accepting this paper on its own terms because, like, the authors acknowledge that what they're measuring could in fact be that having polio makes your educational attainment worse. Not having your school closed makes your educational attainment worse. Um, but because they're measuring, you know, like polio incidents rather than school closures, there's there's no way to disentangle those two. And it seems much more plausible in a way that they're measuring the, you know, that they're measuring the effects of polio severity rather than of school closure. The thing that's important to note that kind of gives some cred to their interpretation is that polio cases were concentrated among kids younger than 10. So if you're seeing a big difference in the educational attainment of 14 to 17s for an epidemic that hit, that you know, where morbidity was much higher among 0 to 10 than among 10 to 17, then you are seeing perhaps the impact of a school closure rather than, well, in the places where polio was worst, teenagers were getting it too. So I think that that's kind of worth bearing in mind. 
Of course, I guess in the real world, it's really also very difficult to disentangle the public health effects of any of this from the, you know, indirect knock-on effects. We can't tell if the unemployment rate spikes. It's going to be really difficult to tell the extent to which it's spiking because social distancing is causing, you know, all of these changes in behavior versus the extent to which having a lot of people sick is a problem for the economy. It's a problem for the workforce, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess... To a certain extent, this maybe is like splitting unusual hairs. But if you're talking, if you're trying to isolate the effects of school closure in particular, especially if we're thinking about, well, what are the effects of like keeping Jose home from, you know, home from school or your kids who may not, you know, who who don't, who haven't contracted coronavirus home from school? We really can't tell from this paper if there's going to be the impact on them or not. I was specifically interested with this paper about how um, not just for older children who would be leaving school altogether, but how interrupted schooling impacted how children read. Now, this wasn't research done for this particular cohort, but it was research done on students who are in third grade. There is a shift that takes place from when you start stop learning to read and then you're reading to learn. And that when that shift is interrupted, that's a huge deal. Something I found surprising is that Third grade performance predicts dropout rates 70% of the time, which, you know, I I have me in third grade, not such a tip top time in my life, but I am interested by how that works on a micro level, because that's just that's not dropping out of school when you're in third grade. That is an interruption of education that impacts what schooling will even look like for you. So, I mean, Jane, are you saying that the lesson of this paper is that all of the kind of soothing, don't worry if you're not the best homeschool teacher for your kids, the point is just to like keep everyone sane takes are in fact very bad? My take is uh, just read with your kids all the time and let them read everything. And if you see something that they shouldn't be reading, you should let them read that too. I mean, this is tough, right? Because obviously the right thing to say is don't worry too much about the homeschooling. Just keep everybody sane. This is a difficult time for everybody. Everybody is doing their best. You don't need an extra layer of stress on top of yourself. At the same time, like, I mean, there is a reason why we have kids in school normally, right? Like if it actually just didn't matter, like there would be a more sweeping implication of that because... I think there's like pretty solid evidence, not specific to disease closures, but that like it actually makes a difference whether or not uh, children are in school and like learn to read and stuff like that. Um, and you see it even in the the summer learning loss literature, right? That like summer vacation, classic rite of passage, uh, but kids, you know, engage in some academic forgetting uh, and over the course of that. And then they tend to catch up. So like, it's, it's okay. You know, it, I, I used to think it was like the end of the world, uh, but it, it's survivable. Um, it's obviously better than like hundreds of thousands of people dying or, or something like that. But I was actually a little surprised in this polio paper that the impacts were so um, real, but they were narrow on just the older kids. So it sort of made me feel better because if anything, they are overestimating the impact. And it seemed to say that younger kids, whatever sort of problems there may or may not have been with this, they kind of washed out in subsequent time, Uh, you know, which is good. I think that's like always what you hope to see with younger kids is that like this may be a problem of some kind, but like 
you catch up to the development curve, uh, which we see on a lot of things. And then other things, uh, you know, we've talked a million times about air pollution and like neonatal nutrition, you don't really catch up on. Uh, so to the extent that like, you know, the stuff they do in elementary school, like you you do catch up on if you miss a year for polio, like that's, that's all good. And to be clear, the mechanism that they're using to kind of hypothesize why there's this difference among teens isn't that it is harder to catch up on ninth grade biology than on third grade reading, but that especially in 1916, if you were 14 years old and your school was closed for several months, you might not be likely to go back to school when it reopened. You might have found a job in the intervening time or, you know, found or decided that this was not the best use of your life to go back to school once you'd already, you know, figured out a non-school way to live. And that is unlikely to be the case, certainly for 14 to 17s. Maybe the important kind of, maybe the crucial demographic here is going to be community college students because we know that there's you know, already relatively low levels of completion of, you know, uh, uh, relatively low college degree attainment for people who have at least one year of college. And it seems plausible that a lot of people seeing their educational plans interrupted at a point where it's not strictly necessary to their future higher ability to get that marginal degree may be deciding not to go back and that that will ultimately, at least, you know, educationally speaking, hurt. Right. I'd be interested also because I think that we're thinking about community colleges is important to do. Also thinking about students for whom, you know, the second semester of their junior year just no longer exists. And so I'm interested in that. But I was trying to think of like if there's a corollary thinking about students who are between the ages of like 13 and 17 and missing a lot of school. And the only thing I can think of is just purely anecdotally students who got mononucleosis, which is as for many listeners, you might recall or may perhaps even had it yourself, is that that is an illness that for many students requires you to not be in school for two months at a time. And so I know that that is an extremely specific form of data to obtain, but I would be interested in educational attainment after that period. Now, that would obviously be on a case-by-case basis and the comparisons between someone who was going to a private school in Philadelphia and got mono as compared to someone going to a public school in Southern California and got mono. But I do think that that specific example, it's not necessarily about what the illness is. It's the idea of being out of school and out of that particular context for two months at a time that I would be interested in seeing what that would look like. But I do think Dara's point is a good one. I mean, I think that's what we should be looking at, right? If school resumes in the fall, is how many marginal college students? But because we know that completion rates are not great anyway, right? A lot of people who are in college in any given spring don't end up coming back in the fall. And do we see a surge in that? And it probably depends on the economic situation, right? Because if we end up with 10% unemployment, uh, people you know, may not have any better option than to go back to school, even if it's difficult. But if the but jo- they also may not be able to afford going back to school because they don't have the income that's going to allow them to pay tuition. Yeah. Although, I mean, in the aggregate, we saw enrollment go up in the Great Recession, not not down. Um, but if the economy bounces back, you know, and people have been dislodged from community college programs, things like that, you know, do they just, you know, you you hear that Amazon needs more people to work at the warehouse. 
you start doing that and then you know next thing you know like that's your job um seems very plausible i mean that seems like a big kind of social indicator to to keep an eye on and hopefully this time around somebody will actually see the records of which schools are closed and when um that seems like a weird bookkeeping oversight from the 1916 pandemic but you know i guess i guess you never know what people in the past are going to think it's important to keep track of retroactive record shaming of school officials from 1916 matt well i don't know man it's like well was the school open today like check a box yes or no It it seems not that hard they were i think they were kind of busy in 1916 there was a lot going on fighting polio yes busy fighting polio whatever no look you're at home you're social distancing um i'm trying to keep a little quarantine diary you know you got nothing better to do than keep track of like in my minute detail like how's my stockpile of dried mangoes doing is school open today no wait matt you have a stockpile of dried mangoes you shouldn't share that publicly (laughs) <laughs> you you shouldn't tell people about that. I need I need guns and ammo to protect my mangoes. <laughs> Either that or you're gonna result in like a mango economy. Like we're going to have that tulip thing happen. No, oh I was actually thinking that it was going to be like an economy of two with Matt developing a very elaborate incentive system for Jose in order to get mangoes because he in the absence of mango rationing, you can use mangoes to reward for good behavior. Yeah. Uh, listen, Ho- Jose doesn't even know, but I have a whole second bag of Costco mangoes in the basement hidden. That's my that's my reserve mangoes, in addition to the mangoes he knows about. So yeah. the reveal here is going to be the Matt, you're going to open your closet door at the end of this episode, and Jose is going to be there listening with a glass to the whole thing. <laughs> No, no, he's a he's a good kid. He's a good kid. Okay, we better wrap this up. Uh, may, maybe next week we can go more into everybody's food hoarding strategies. Um, so for now, uh, thank you to uh, Jeffrey Geld, our producer, uh, who does excellent work every week, and especially this week, he's helping a hero. with. Um, with that absolutely our the the weed supply chain is intact solely because of the efforts of jeff geld yes. to be clear uh, hard technical issues uh hop into the weeds facebook group um you know there's there's a lot to talk about there um you can also see the cover of uh, my new book which i just popped in uh and share that with all your friends um but yeah uh everybody enjoy and the weeds will be back on friday 